Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program in which we explore with engineers, scientists, decision makers, policy makers, and stakeholders some of the major issues confronting our coastal regions and what's being done to address them. I'm Jerry Schubel, president of the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I will be your host. Each month, we will explore a new coastal issue from a national perspective. A number of coastal institutions, mostly aquariums, in every section of the country will explore these same topics from a regional perspective. Over the course of the next 12 months, our goal is to create a digital library of these conversations, both national and regional, that can be used by communities to help prepare for what promises to be a challenging future. In each program, I will have a co-host from one of these aquariums. Worldwide, we are experiencing two of the largest migrations in all of human history, the migration of people to the coast and the migration of people into cities. More than half of Earth's 7.2 billion people live within 50 miles of the coast. More than half live in cities, and more than two-thirds of the world's large cities are on the coast. The intense settlement and development of the coast over the past few centuries took place during a period of relatively stable sea level, but that is changing. The sea is rising more rapidly now than at any time in the past 8,000 years and it will continue to rise for decades, perhaps centuries, because of climate change. Superimposed upon the higher sea, coastal storms and storm surges pose a growing threat to coastal cities. Society will protect many of the world's great cities against the rising sea. The investment in them is simply too great to abandon them. But some communities may choose to move away from the coast in a process referred to as strategic retreat and our reliance on the urbanized coastal ocean is too great not to plan for its future, to reduce society's conflicts with coastal and marine ecosystems, and to stimulate appropriate and compatible human uses. In this series, we will explore the challenges and the opportunities with experts. Welcome to our second program of Coastal Conversations. Our topic for today is sea level rise and coastal flooding. And I have with me an expert on the topic, Doug Marcy, who is joining us from Charleston, South Carolina. Welcome, Doug. Doug is a coastal. Hi, Jerry. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me today. We're delighted to have you, Doug. Doug is a coastal hazard specialist at the NOAA Coastal Services Center in Charleston. He's been with them for over 11 years, working on problems related to sea level rise and coastal flooding and to making our coastal communities more resilient to coastal flooding and to other disasters. In our first program, we saw that in the U.S. and worldwide, more than 50% of the population lives within coastal counties or within 50 miles of the ocean, and that most of this development took place during a period of relatively stable sea level. That situation is changing, and it puts much of our coastal population and the infrastructure that supports them at risk, both from the rising sea and particularly from storms that are superimposed upon this higher sea. We humans continue to move toward the coast, and the sea is rising and advancing to greet us. We're on a collision course. Today we're going to explore this condition and some ways of dealing with it. So let's start by providing some perspective. Doug. 
Give us a brief history of recent sea level rise, starting perhaps seven to 10,000 years ago, but then move quickly to the past few hundred years and tell us what we can expect in the next few decades to a century. Okay, sure, Jerry. Uh, looking back maybe even a little farther, 20,000 years ago was really when we were at the height of our last ice age. Sea level, rise, sea level was much lower than it is today, probably about 400 feet lower than it is today. And then it rose very rapidly and started to taper off around 7,000 years ago. And then sea level still rose some from 7,000 to 4,000, but it's been relatively stable for the past 4,000 years. And of course, that's when we had our modern civilizations, which started about 6,000 years ago, the Egyptians, Greek, Roman civilizations from about 5,000 to 3,000 years ago, and then, of course, Christianity starting less than 2,000 years ago. But really, our modern-day cities and most of our coastal development has occurred in the last couple hundred years. So, so the point is sea level has been very stable when we've had most of our development along the coast. Uh, okay, Doug, so it's clear then that sea level was relatively stable for most of the past 4,000 years, but now it's rising at a relatively rapid rate, rapid at least by geologic standards. So tell us what has, what's happening now. Right, so sea level uh, has really started rising again. It's been stable, but it started rising in earnest again in the late 1800s and 1900s. Uh, or, I mean, sorry, late 1800s, early 1900s. And um, since about 1990, uh, sea level has risen about 1.7 millimeters a year, according to tide gauge data, and according to more newer technology using satellite altimetry, has risen about 3.2 millimeters a year. Um, they started measuring that back in the 90s. That's, that's about one inch a decade globally. Of course, in some places, we've had a lot faster uh, rates uh, due to subsidence of the land. For example, the Mississippi Delta region has uh, seen three feet of, of sea level rise in the, in the last 100 years, mostly because the land is also going down. So, Doug, what are the driving forces? What's causing sea level to rise? Well, there's primarily uh, five factors that, that drive sea level rise. One is the exchange of water stored on, on land as ice. These are our, our uh, continental ice sheets and um, glaciers. Uh, the warming of the ocean actually causes the ocean to expand its volume. Uh, this, also the surface and the deep ocean uh, circulation will change due to some of the interaction between the different factors. Also tectonic and um, sedimentation will cause uh, subsidence in the land. And then the fifth one is the terrestrial water supply uh, storage, like in reservoirs, and also the amount of runoff and contribution through groundwater. All five of those sort of act together to uh, change sea level. But two, only two of those actually add to the volume of, of the world ocean. One is the new addition of new water, and the other is the expansion because of the warming of the ocean. Which of the two is more important? And has that changed over time, and will it change in the future? Well, I think we're starting, science is getting a better handle on the contribution of the, of the ice melt. It turns out it, it plays a major role. It's, it's kind of a nonlinear relationship in how the ice melt impacts the overall um, uh, contribution. But um, the 
a NOAA study that came out in 2012 as a result of the National Climate Assessment uh, has four scenarios, and they uh, some of the earlier um, climate studies didn't really include the ice melt component. Um, but looking at these curves, you see that in the NOAA scenarios, the low scenario is just a linear extrapolation of the historical sea level rise rate. So in other words, what's happened in the past will continue to happen at the same rate going out to 2100. It's a pretty unlikely scenario because we know we are going to have, if we get increased temperature uh, of atmospheric temperature, we're going to have uh, the intermediate low scenario is primarily just the ocean warming and the volume change there. But if we start to add ice contribution, we get an intermediate high scenario, which is the warming plus a little bit of ice, uh, limited ice sheet loss. And then the highest of those curves there is ocean warming and the maximum ice loss. So you see there's quite a range, but uh, there's a high confidence, about a 9 in 10 chance that we're going to have somewhere between that range, which is about 0.7 to 6.6 feet by 2100. Okay, and the difference between 0.7 feet and 6.6 .6 feet is, is really huge. And uh, the range in estimates reflect the uncertainty, but I think everything suggests that the probability of it being near the upper part of that range uh, increases with our new knowledge. But in, in any case, none of us live at the average. So how does sea level vary around the United States? Start in the Northeast, take us through the Gulf and up along the West Coast. How does it vary? Right. So what we've been talking about so far is just global sea level rise. And of course, locally, you have all kinds of different um, factors. For instance, the relative movement of the land from subsidence or uplift, large-scale climate patterns like uh, El Nino, um, and then regional local patterns from local tide uh, differences and currents and winds. And so uh, if you look at this graphic uh, showing um, the relative sea level rise rates, and these are all local rates based on tide gauges from NOAA tide gauges, you can see that some parts of the country are the, the rates are quite high, uh, especially uh, well in the Northeast. We have rebound happening from the last glacial um, period. So when the glaciers left the, the region, the land is actually rebounding. So the rates aren't as high there because the land's actually going up, and that's the same in Alaska. But as you go down uh, the, the mid-Atlantic area, has some subsidence going on, higher rates there, also due to um, uh, some oceanographic factors, and then um, in Louisiana, you see especially those those two uh, large red areas. That's where we're getting most subsidence uh, due to sedimentation and other reasons tectonically there that are causing the sea level rise uh, to be um, higher. But you do see that geographically it does differ uh, by location. And, and Doug, there are a couple of places on that map where the arrows were blue and they're pointed down. What does that mean? So in those places the land's actually going up relative to sea level rise. And again, in the northern parts of the country, like Alaska, and places where the glaciers existed in the last glacial period, um, when the glaciers melted, the land was basically responding from the lack of weight and it's um, increasing the elevation there. So it, the land's actually rising faster than the ocean is, so sea level uh, relatively is going down. So if I'm living in one of those areas, I look out, and even though sea level is rising, I'm rising more rapidly than it, so sea level appears to be going down. That's right. But that's only in a very few yes. areas of our country. <laughs> right. And over the longer term, this inexorable rise of sea level takes a toll, certainly. But in the shorter term, it's the coastal storms that are in superimposed upon the rising sea. 
that we need to be concerned about. Tell, tell us uh, about that. Yeah, so any rise in water level, whether we are talking about global rise or local, uh, caused by sea level, um, is going to cause uh, the existing phenomena we already have, the existing processes like waves and storm surge from tides, I mean from storms, and then even tidal flooding, our, our everyday tide flooding, is going to make it travel farther inland. Sea level will make it travel farther inland and cause more damage, and um, it's going to basically cause natural coastal protection features like our dune systems uh, to be overtopped sooner, and so we're going to lose that coastal protection faster and therefore be more vulnerable. So, Doug, you mentioned that we have these no natural coastal protection features like dunes. Say a word about the importance of protecting these natural features. The dune systems uh, around our, our beaches really provide us a, a level of protection, um, and where they're where they're more robust, uh, we can um, actually uh, absorb some of the wave action from these storm events and actually protect the structures behind it. But when the dune systems become um, uh, you know, smaller due to a number of storms hitting either in a row or the lack of sediment volume um, or other reasons, then it, it doesn't offer as much protection. And of course, if you add sea level rise, then you're going to overtop the dunes uh, faster. So you have less natural protection. So people will be forced to try to protect their properties by either sea walls or other or other means, and in many cases, uh, are, in many states, that hard stabilization is not um, not within their legal frame, framework to do, so it's not an option. So we should work to protect our natural protection systems, whether they're beaches or, or dunes or, or wetlands. Absolutely. Doug, Doug, while we can't relate any single storm, like Superstorm Sandy or Katrina, to climate change, is it reasonable to expect that tropical storms will increase in intensity if not in frequency, as a result of ocean warming, since they get their energy from the ocean, the ocean will be warmer, the ocean will have more energy. Well, right, and that's, that's the, um, that part makes sense, considering the ocean's going to be warmer, you would think we'd have more intense storms. And in fact, there's still a lot of research going on in this area. Uh, we, do, we can say that we can expect an increased frequency in the stronger hurricanes because the ocean will have more heat content, but there potentially could be a decrease in the overall number of hurricanes towards the end of the century, and that has to do with potentially more cloudiness and from evaporation. Um, and so there's, you know, not always a, a positive relationship there, but the, um, uh, the, the science is showing that we would have uh, stronger hurricanes, but potentially less of them. So, Doug, finally, tell us a little bit about the role that NOAA's Coastal Services Center and you play in keeping track of sea level rise, coastal storms, and in helping the public be prepared and to know how to respond following these events. Clearly, NOAA has the leadership role in predicting, forecasting where these major storms will, will go, what their tracks will be, their intensity, but you do much more than that. Explain us a little bit. Well, yes, uh, at, at our office, uh, the NOAA Coastal Services Center, um, through our Digital Coast Program, we provide a lot of data and tools, training uh, needed to map and visualize and understand the potential impacts of sea level rise and coastal flooding. We have a project going on right now, and you can, you can see on the graphic here, we're currently mapping impacts across the U.S. 
of about, up to about six feet, which is the higher end of the scenario as we talked about, above the current average highest tides. Um, this tool uh, called Sea Level Rise Coastal Flood Viewer allows the user to use a, um, uh, a slider bar to increase the water levels and look at different geographic areas. The, the picture you have there is of the um, Aquarium of the Pacific and Long Beach area showing you the areas that are going to be vulnerable, including the green areas there, which are not necessarily connected to the ocean, but are low-lying areas that potentially could have drainage problems from uh, rain events as well. So We're Doug, also Doug, should I be moving my office up to the second floor of the aquarium? Yeah, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Doug, you, you've given us a, a good context of what has happened with sea level rise over the last several thousand years, what's happening, what's likely to happen in the future. I want us to, to take a look at Superstorm Sandy, the megastorm of 2012 that did so much damage to the U.S., particularly in the Mid-Atlantic region. The NOAA forecasts were spot on, but knowing that a major storm is coming and even knowing something about its intensity and when it's going to make landfall really isn't enough. Sandy was only a Category 2 hurricane by the time it reached the Mid-Atlantic region, but it's the largest Atlantic hurricane on in terms of its size that we have in the record. And there were hurricane winds that extended over an area over a thousand miles wide. You can see the huge size of it. Go back to that previous one a second. And you can see the outline of the east coast of, of the United States. A huge, huge storm. In the next one, you're going to see the, the track. The, this storm developed as a tropical wave in the Western Caribbean on October the 22nd, 2012. It strengthened quickly and was upgraded to a tropical storm uh, six hours later. And in, the next, in this slide, you really see, get a good idea of the track that she took. And uh, moving across Cuba, it went through these different periods of intensification and weakening. And you can see that it moved up parallel to the East Coast. And then somewhere off the Delaware Bay, it took a left hook and came right into the New York Bight. And by the time she got to the United States coastline, it was a Category 2 storm. And you can see that it moved across the Appalachians all the way up to, to Lake Erie. And again, we look at the size of this storm. It was absolutely huge. Can we? Again, look at the outline of the map. You can see Long Island, Chesapeake Bay, Delaware Bay, and the size of, of uh, Superstorm Sandy. In the U.S., Sandy affected 24 states, including the entire eastern seaboard from Florida to Maine and all the way across to the Great Lakes. It affected Michigan and Wisconsin. But the damage was particularly severe in New Jersey and New York. It, most times it's hard to get a cab in New York. This time it was even harder. Sandy was the second costliest hurricane in the U.S. behind only Katrina. The estimates as of June 2013 put the damage at slightly over $68 billion. That's only in the U.S. and those were in 2013 U.S. dollars. As I said, New York and New Jersey were particularly hard hit. The storm surge hit the New York City area on October the 29th, 2012. It flooded streets, tunnels, subway lines, cut power in and around the city, 
throughout much of New Jersey and New York and in some other states. Subways, tunnels, airports, schools, Wall Street and Broadway shows were all canceled, along with ferry service and several large hospitals were closed and evacuated. And even the New York City Marathon was canceled after tens of thousands of runners had gathered in New York City. Throughout the area, parks, playgrounds, and even the Statue of Liberty were closed. At least 53 people died in New York as a result of the storm. And economic losses across New York were estimated to be at least 18 billion. In New Jersey, a 50-foot piece of the Atlantic City boardwalk was washed away, and half the city of Hoboken was flooded. New Jersey lost more than 350,000 homes. They were either damaged or destroyed. 37 people were killed. And while wind caused some of the damage, by far the greatest damage was caused by the storm surge that you've heard about from Doug. And the problem with Sandy was that it occurred at a time of high tide. So the storm surge was about 14 feet above mean low water. Sandy underscored the vulnerability of our coastal communities to flooding associated with tropical storms. Not just the places, though, that we live and work, but the infrastructure upon which we depend for everything we do transportation systems, electrical grids, water and wastewater treatment facilities, hospitals. It was very clear that we need to make the infrastructure more robust, and that's at the heart of creating resilient coastal communities. Doug, do you see that Superstorm Sandy was a wake-up call to government at all levels in terms of the need to make these infrastructure systems more robust? Yeah, I think it really was, uh, Jerry. It was uh, many of the um, products that we rely on, for instance, uh, through the National Flood Program, our, our flood insurance rate maps that we that we are used to seeing, you know, for um, actuarial rating of our flood risks. Um, you know, those current maps don't take into account future flooding conditions. They, they only look at what's going on uh, under current conditions. So. I think it's uh, Sandy was the first time that there was an opportunity to start looking at future flood risk because the flood maps were being updated in the New York, New Jersey area before Sandy hit. And so several agencies got together, NOAA, FEMA, the Corps of Engineers, um, the um, Global Change Research Program worked together to start to look at how we can add some of these sea level rise scenarios we talked about earlier to the current flood risk maps to show that the, these floodplains will expand as sea level rises in the future. And also to give people um, an idea of how much uh, freeboard, if you will, they need to put into building when they build a new structure, how many more feet do they need to elevate that structure to be more resilient? Because it's gonna, a little bit of investment now might cause uh, less, less loss uh, and structures to last much longer into the future. Thank you, Doug. And the loss of power was particularly damaging in the mid-Atlantic states, particularly New York, New Jersey, where millions of people were without power for nearly a week, tens of thousands were without power for several weeks, and thousands lost power for more than a, than a month. And 
the electrical system of the nation really are vulnerable, not just to st storms like Sandy, but in the part of the country where we live here in the southwest U.S. They may be more vulnerable to extreme hot spells and where the demand of electricity gets very high. Doug, would you like to add a word about your and NOAA's efforts to make our coastal communities both human and natural more resilient to extreme weather re events of all kinds? Sure, just want to mention, I mean, NOAA is a very diverse agency. We, we look at uh, research, we have data development, modeling, forecasting, as you mentioned, some of the NOAA forecasts being so accurate, put a lot of effort into that. Um, hurricane forecasting has become much more accurate in terms of the track. Still got some work to do on the intensity of these storms, but also decision support tools, uh, technical support, outreach, education, and where our office comes in, what I primarily work on is to um, really try to translate all this good science that's going on to those that make decisions about our coast future. Thank you, Doug. These con conversations are done in collaboration with Coastal America and the Coastal Ecosystem Learning Center Network. It's a network of 25 coastal institutions, nearly all are aquariums, and one of the goals of this program is to use these institutions to engage the visitors to these institutions in dialogues to increase the resilience of the communities in which they're located. Here's a, here's a map that was a result of a workshop that we d held earlier this year. And we brought together a few aquariums and we talked about extreme weather-related events in different parts of the United States. So you can see that extreme weather events along the mid-Atlantic, heavy rains and floods, hurricanes, tropical storms, severe snowstorms, they're very different than they are in the Gulf, or particularly in the Southwest where we are here in Long Beach, California, where we're more vulnerable to droughts and to heat waves, heavy rain and floods, severe uh, snowstorms in the mountains, um, and uh, some, some tornadoes. We're gonna be talking a lot more about this network of institutions and what we can do in the future to help make our communities more resilient. I'm Jerry Schubel, and we thank you for watching, and I thank Doug Marcy for his comments and for being with us today. Thanks to all of you.